This podcast is brought to you by People.ai. People.ai auto-populates CRM with business activity sourced directly from sales teams' inboxes. Visit People.ai to learn more about how sales and marketing teams can harness business activity to unlock growth. People never get inspired by the tooling. Uh, people get inspired by the destination that uh, these tools can potentially bring them. As leaders, uh, we, we do need to be good at balancing these two dimensions. From People.ai, this is the Legends of Sales and Marketing podcast. Each week, we'll dive into a story from a different legend of sales and marketing to find out how they changed the game. Visit people.ai slash legends for more episodes, interviews, and profiles on more of these icons of sales and marketing. Welcome, everyone, to the Legends of Sales and Marketing podcast. My name is Justin Schreiber, and I'm the Chief Marketing Officer at PeopleAI. Today, I am very excited to be joined by Cedric Pesh. He is the Chief Revenue Officer at MongoDB, cut his teeth in the mid-90s back at PTC, and since then has had a great run. I'm really excited to get into some background on Cedric and find out what made him the professional he is today. But first and foremost, Cedric, welcome to the podcast. Uh, Thank you for having me, Justin. Very nice to be with you today. Cedric, you've developed a very interesting fondness for an ancient civilization, the Etruscans, existed around 600 BCE. How in the world did you discover this civilization? And tell me a little bit about why you were so fascinated by it. I've always been very into history, but the reason I bumped into this civilization is because the heart, this civilization started uh, even even before what you mentioned, 10 centuries before Christ. Um, so it's quite, you know, it's more like Egyptian-like, Egyptian old, actually. It's a fascinating topic because we live at a time when everything is moving so quickly. We think literally in terms of seconds and minutes, and yet you're you're describing something that is that is millennia old. As you think about the civilization, as you've studied it, as you've studied the arts, how has that kind of shaped your perspective on life in general? Very uh, insightful question, uh, Justin, because uh, we do live in a world which is obviously highly virtual, big data, you know highly scalable databases and applications and, and, and more of it. And the, for me, what I found by getting emerged into that civilization and even by leading into an area like this one is a kind of a sense of perspective, uh, that, um, you know, the Etruscans disappeared in the first century after, after Christ under uh, the Roman pressure, right? Uh, and that civilization, existed much before the Romans, was an unbelievably sophisticated civilization, though extremely understated because we all talk about the Greeks, but the Etruscans were as sophisticated and advanced, if not more than the Greeks. Uh, so those people, all the foundations of Rome come from that civilization. So talk about, uh, talk about, um, let's say, uh, heritage or, uh, about talk about a civilization which has left something um, in the long term, but still very understated, ironically. Well, it's a great, it's a great tee up for this conversation. Obviously, we're talking about the legacy that we all as professionals leave to future generations. And 
that kind of a topic really puts things in in perspective. Well, yeah, it does. I'd love to go back in time with you to when you were a kid and learn a little bit about where you grew up and the kind of things that you did as a child. Well, I grew up, as we were discussing the other day, uh, chatting me and I, right? I grew up into, uh, in a ski resort, uh, was born and raised there. Um, my whole family was in the ski business. And I think uh, that I spent most of my youth um, thinking of, uh, you know, how to become a professional skier uh, and a professional uh, sport person. Uh, the whole, I think, you know, I, most breakfast and lunches and dinners and activities were revolving around uh, my father, which was a ski teacher and a mountain guide, uh, as well as my uncle. And the whole family was in the ski business. So that's pretty much everything we were doing at the time. I was an avid reader from the early days as well. Um, and um, I would probably summarize my life in the first years around these two topics. And I understand that you actually had aspirations to become a great Olympian uh, from a downhill ski perspective. Is that the case? Yeah, that's, you know, when uh, my father was uh, a ski teacher in 1968, in 68, most of our audience here was probably even bored, but all those uh, which are interested in sport, they were the Olympic Games in Grenoble, France. And a guy called, uh, called uh, Kili won uh, the three gold medals in giant slalom and downhill and went on to history as the most famous skier ever. And my father was there, part of the organization, one of the many, and got very inspired by this guy. And therefore, you know, when I started growing up, instead of talking to me about Santa Claus, uh, he would talk to me about uh, Jean-Claude Tilly and what he had done and all the inspiration about that guy. And I guess that, you know, that nurtured a lot of the motivation that I ended up having to uh, to emulate uh, that guy uh, as, as, a, as a downhiller and as a skier. Jean-Claude Tilly is is certainly known as one of the greats when it comes to skiing, but he is also a great humanitarian, uh, someone that, that truly believes in giving back not only to his sport, but to anyone where he feels like he can uh, provide a lift. I know that you and he have intersected at different points in your life and, and have had an ongoing relationship. Tell me a little bit about that relationship and that the impact it's had on you. Yeah, well... <clears throat> When, uh, you know, the early days of uh, me hearing about Jean-Claude Killy and as long as, as soon as I was able to write something, uh, I would start writing probably every week uh, to this guy. Um, and uh, my mom, to protect him, thanks God, will take most of those letters and put them in the drawer, uh, except a few ones. And what's amazing about that guy is that um, he actually answered all these, uh, all, all of these letters, right? And and uh, and some of those answers, uh, looking back, were ama- amazingly in- insightful. Um, and to the point that, you know, across many, many moves into my, during my life and my career, moving to different countries, I always kept those answers with me, like, like you know, a, a treasure and a reminding of, uh, to remind me of those early days uh, where it was about having big dreams and trying to uh, become an Olympic, uh, an Olympic champion. And like a reminder of uh, the importance of believing into big things. And that guy had nurtured that uh, when, I was, uh, when I was five or seven years old. Um, and in 2010, I was going through a motivational crisis. I was in my home office after a, a tough end of quarter. And I was uh, having my you know, post end of quarter flu uh, where the stress, stress goes down. I'm sure you know about that. And I was cleaning that home office and I found one of those postal cards 
where he had written on that postal card, he had written to me, Cedric, remember, no need to win with three seconds. Um, uh, eight hundredths of a sec are enough. Because he had won the downhill uh, with uh, eight hundredths of, uh, of, of a sec, sec right? Yeah. And uh, I'm looking at this postal card and, you know, I'm like, um, I'm, I'm, I'm a little down and, you know, I look for his address on the internet. He lives in Switzerland those days. And I decided to write him back um, uh, a, a small letter and thanking him substantially for the fact that he had at the time answered my, my letters. And that even to those days was quite a few years ago, 2010, roughly, as I was saying before, I was still, you know, kind of showing up at work and trying to do my job in a way that was inspired by uh, the same principle that he had in, that he had uh, inspired in me um, 30 years before 40 years before trying to do the work in a, you know trying to be un- a little uncommon um and therefore I wrote that letter I was in London I will remember that for my whole life my wife calls me and she goes like Kelly answered you and I had then told my wife that I had uh, written to Kelly uh, so I flew back straight down there uh, an open uh, letter and, uh, and the letter he sent me back was had the huge impact on my life because the guy immediately understood the meaning of that letter and wrote back substantially saying that it was that letter in itself deserved all the efforts that I've made for 40 years answering every uh, autographs that I've answered for all these years, right? That's the beginning of the letter. Uh, and then he keeps going and thanking me for it and and he tells me, you know, that after all the successes he's got, uh, being, you know, part of the International Olympic Committee, organizing five or six Olympic Games and having been a successful businessman and many other things, he writes in 75, I think that happiness is in the journey, not in the destination. Um, so that had a big impact, I must say, on, uh, on my life. Hmm. I've got a few of those postcards myself. You pull them out and... It's always astounding to me the impact that a few words scribbled on the back of a note card can have. I like to say that in many cases, history tilts on a razor's edge. It's those small moments that we think are so inconsequential that as we look back 20, 30, 40 years later, completely change the trajectory of our lives. Yeah, I think you nailed it. Um, And which which also reminds us uh, now that, uh, you know, you and I are a little older, that we do have a responsibility to others. Uh, every, the way we use our words and the way we act and the way we uh, try to uh, do our jobs and or being fathers uh, of kids, I'm not sure you have kids, uh, but uh, you do have a, you know, a word or an action might uh, forever influence the life of a bunch of people around you, right? Very true, very true. I actually have five kids. I think we could do a whole podcast just on kids. So my well, uh, <laughs> <laughs> All right. So you you have your sights set on Olympic gold. At some point, you realized that wasn't the future for you. When did you hang up the skis and and make the shift into the business world? Uh, I was eighteen years old. Um, I realized that that would not work for me. Uh, was for a bunch of reasons. Uh, and um, and you know, my father uh, quickly told me you have the choice between going and start working and you know making a living or or. Uh, or you go and study, but for serious this time. <laughs> and I picked up the, the second option um, and started to actually, you know, um, go for, you know, French competitions and uh, in, uh, in, in, you know, to go into those business schools and got one and, and moved on. 
what let I actually most of the viewers or the listeners can't see this, but you have a t-shirt on today with a downhill ski racer. So yeah. I know that I know that you still hold the uh, you still hold the passion as a as a CRO today. What lessons did you learn as a skier that you pull through and and, and fall back on? Well, I realized that that's that's a great great question, Justin. I realized that only many many years later, talking to my brother as well. I think I got used to uh, deal with danger and fear very early. Uh, because downhill is a spot where I've got quite a few of my old buddies, which ended up on the wheelchair. And, um, and therefore I didn't realize it for many years, but the reality is that from the very early days, uh, I dealt with that and with the potential, uh, risk associated with doing that spot, which was also the thrill into it. Right. And at the time, the security, um, was not far away from what it is today. So there were many more accidents and so on and so forth. Anyways, I think what, that helped me a lot uh, because my version of risk-taking, I've realized over the years, uh, was far more, uh, let's say, risk-taking than most others. Um, and, and that, I, I must say, you know, I dared making decisions, uh, many bad ones, I have to say, uh, and a few good ones. I dared making those decisions because of those years uh, and my proportion propension to risk-taking. Um, that's one aspect. And the other aspect, I think, is that um, I've... Early in those years, uh, attention to details to keep yourself out of trouble were quite, was quite important. Um, making sure, you know, that your, uh, your staff was in order and, uh, and, and that you would, uh, you know, you would be work out properly to, you know, be healthy. You would, you know, go to bed early the day before and so on and so forth. It was just a question. It wasn't only a question of performance. It was a question of, you know, staying, uh, staying uh, all together. Uh, and that attention to details, uh, even to those days, to these days, uh, never let me. Um, I, I stayed quite focused on the little things which can make a giant difference over time. There's a recurring theme that I hear as I talk to CROs, CMOs, this notion that in their youth, dealing with high pressure, dangerous risky situations, situations that scared themselves, you know, petrified them. I was talking to Robin Matlock uh, the other day. She's the, the CMO over at VMware. She was a musician as a young girl. And she said, I remember standing up in front of an audience to perform and I was absolutely petrified, but I had to learn how to control my fear. Yeah, And that well, skill of controlling the fear I've used throughout my career. Yeah, that's I, I. I wish I had that conversation with her because I very much relate uh, to uh, to this, uh, and uh, I completely understand where she comes from. So you landed in business school. Your your life is pivoting now, and at that point, was it a foregone conclusion that you were going to go into sales, or was it kind of a no? No, it's almost like you know uh, my buddies after business school went. I when I went to sales. And actually, I, I, you know, I went to Italy, um, very early days. Uh, they were like, you know, coming from France and having been to that business school, they were like, did you lose a bet or what? <laughs> right. <laughs> because they would go into banks and Deloitte and these big, you know, consulting firms and, and I would go and sell software, which I wasn't really aware of it either. Either I didn't really understand what that meant to be very open with you. Uh, but for sure, that wasn't, uh, part of the, that wasn't part of the of the process. No, I was. Oh, it just happened to. Uh, I think I ended up in sales 
for the same reasons that I made business decisions later, which is people. I happened to bump into this company called PTC, as you mentioned before, and they were recruiting people. And I went through the whole cycle of interviews. I went to the uh, head of EMEA, which his name, his name was Kurt Bowman, still still in the business those days. Probably doesn't remember me. And uh, he he asked me, where do you want to go and work? And uh, I think that's one of the few interviews that I've ever done in my life. And I had a great answer, which rarely happens. I told him, Ever, wherever in the world, but just, I just want to work for your very best leader. And he said, here you go. Uh, Bologna, Italy. And I bumped into this guy called Carlo Carpanelli, uh, which, uh, was quite a man, uh, who had a, a very strong influence on my life as a sales leader. And I'm really happy that I bumped into it 15 minutes in the interview. I knew that I would, I would go in sales. What was it about Carlo that had such a big impact? I'll tell you this little story. I am a month in the job. PTC was a brutal company. I had never seen a customer in my life. I was spending my weekends in my car, hardly speaking Italian, trying to find names of companies with my recorder to go for PG day on Monday. And I was desperate to try to even talk to customers. Um, my brother comes to Bologna. Uh, and he's up for a worldwide backpacking tour. And on Sunday nights, he takes me at dinner. He's supposed to leave uh, town on Monday morning with the first flight. And he goes like, what are you doing to yourself? Uh, you know, I had spent the weekend studying big binders with engineering stuff to sell that product. I was trying to, to learn the product that they were supposed to sell. So Monday morning comes up. Sunday nights, he, tell, he tells me, you know, I'm like, yeah, I, I don't really know what I'm doing to myself. I'm I'm up for the worldwide backpacking tour with you Monday morning. And I, I'm doubting this moment where I'm going to show up to the, in the office and, and resign, uh, you know, quit on Carlo. And I'm in the office 730 in the morning. I'm hoping for Carlo to show up later so that I don't have to have that conversation. You see when you dance conversation, those conversations, right? And he shows up 730 shop as usual. In, instead of going straight into his office, he decides to come straight to my office. Because he had an unbelievable eye. He was a great leader, right? And he stares at me straight in the eyes and he goes like, how are you? It was like almost on a slow motion movie, right? And I was like, oh, this is horrible. Uh, and I start, you know, mumbling and, you know, Carlo, I'm not sure. I made a good decision for myself. And he cuts me, looks at me, stares at me and says, where do you live? And I tell him, you know, I've been for a month and a half in a crappy hotel in the suburb of Bologna. And, you know, I haven't got the time to do anything else. And it's like, it's not a part-time job here. Right. And he goes like, you're going to stop. You're going to go in town. You're going to find yourself a nice apartment. You're going to take care of your logistics. And until that is taken care of, you are not going to come back to the office. And I'm watching him. I'm like, I don't think you get the drill juice. I, I don't have the money for the down payment for the apartment. And uh, I don't think I'm going to go for an apartment and hopefully going to keep me on the expense report so that I can keep going in this crappy hotel and stay here, right? And before I finish my sentence, he pulls out his checks book, write me a 3 million lire check, which was, you know, probably $15,000, $10,000 of these days, which was probably one of the largest checks that I had ever seen in my life at the time. And he goes like, uh, you take that, uh, you take care of that apartment. 
And, you know, I had known the guy for a month and a half. And I'm like, you, whoa, 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 whoa. Don't do that to me. I don't know you. I never take money from anyone. And by the way, Carlo, <laughs> I never give you this money back because I have, I don't have the first penny out of it. And he had one line, which as well shows you what great leaders are able to do. He's, he looked at me and he said, you're going to reimburse me with your first commissions. So I sit back. I look at him and I say, I didn't tell him, but I say, the guy believes in me more than I believe in myself. He believes in me being able to make commissions. Me, selling software? That's never, I was like, up to that moment, I lost the hope of being able to do it. But he had that line and this action of writing a check, getting a check on his personal dime, um, and, uh, and sending a message, which is like, we're going to make it to you. Just, you know, pick up, take your diapers off, pick yourself up and let's go for it. And, um, and that reminded, that stayed with me as well, right? Uh, leaders believing in their people is a very, 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 very important, uh, very important factor in their success. Uh, Carlo was a great leader. I love the fact that you didn't know a lot about sales, but you were smart enough to say, just let me work for your best leader. And that changed everything. Yeah, that's, uh, you know, you have a poet in the U.S. Uh, I took the, the road less traveled and it made all the difference. It did make all the difference. Yeah. So, so I'm a firm believer, too, that to a large extent, we are shaped by the people with whom we associate. We're actually going to talk to a few other a few other folks on the podcast, John McMahon, Jeremy Duggan. I know that your careers have, have crossed paths, intersected in the past. Tell me a little bit about your relationship with them and how you guys have all influenced each other. Uh, well, you're going to ask that question to them. I'm not sure I influenced them at all, but uh, for sure, uh, they influenced me. And, you know, I like in every job, right? It's not like, uh, or in every discipline, they are... The people which leave you something are not hundreds of them, right? And yeah, this, I'm glad that you are interviewing them, interviewing them as well, because they do stand out of the crowd. Um, I guess that from Jeremy, um, we've been, you know, indirectly or directly competing with each other for a long time. What I've learned from him is a few things as far as leading the sales team is concerned, especially around data-driven sales process in enterprise software sales, for sure. But I think what I've learned from him um, is more a way of doing his job with honor and uh, and without, you know, he's a guy which, there's, this is a, a fighter, right? And he does believe in, in people. He does believe in trying to do things uh, with a certain level of... Uh, with a certain standing and uh, a level of intensity, which is uncommon um, in, uh, which is simply uncommon. I also learned uh, friendship. You can compete and still respect each other and become great friends. And, and that uh, for me has been a blessing in my, uh, in my career, right? And from John, I would say that it's been a much longer experience since I bumped into him at PTC was the head of Europe. Uh, and soon the head of all white sales, I was one of, one of the 900 reps, right? <laughs> um, and, uh, I think from him, I've been quite inspired by a couple of things. He does uh, a certain, uh, an empathy for people as well, which uh, makes him believe into uh, people by, by design, by default. 
and give a chance. A completely an unbiased way of looking at people wherever they come from and whatever their background is. Um, and that as well is inspiring. I think I would not, you know, uh, you hear my accent. Uh, I don't, I haven't met many leaders uh, which have been believing in people which were different, coming from different backgrounds as much as you, wherever the work of life, whatever work of, of life they were coming from. Uh, as well, his ability to hold people accountable in a positive way, uh, in a constructive way, and to tell the truth without sugarcoating it, so that you always know where you are, and therefore you do have an opportunity and a shot at progressing and becoming a better version of yourself, is always, does require someone who cares, which is the empathy I was talking about, right? For some people, it's unbearable, and for others, it's like a, a breath of fresh air. As far as I was concerned, it's always been a, a breath of fresh air because it was like, I know what I need to do. Sometimes I don't like what I hear about me, uh, but at, I, at least I know where I stand and what I need to do to work on myself, right? And that as well has been quite uh, an inspiring uh, journey. Um, thanks to uh, that influence, he influenced me in this way, and that's for sure. And the two of them are just, you know, uncommon individuals. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Well, uh, one of the common themes that comes through is this idea of sport competition. Jeremy's a great sportsman as well. Soccer, football played a big role in his life. But some yeah. interesting themes Secret. coming through that you picked up uh, on the the uh, ski slopes and that he picked up on the, on the football field. All right. You've quoted a great American poet, Robert Frost. We need to give it. France, it's due, given the uh, the amazing <laughs> literary tradition that comes out of that country as well. So I want to talk a little bit about Antoine de Saint-Exupéry. I know that you are a fan of his. I've actually heard you quote one of his famous lines, if you want to build a ship, don't drum up the men to gather the wood, divide the work, and give orders. Instead, teach them to yearn for the vast and endless sea. Tell me a little bit about that quote, what that means to you, and, and how you've kind of seen that play out. Well, what that means to me is that, you know, as much sophistication we can put in developing people about sales techniques and products and, and, you know, sales processes and qualification frameworks and forecast ways of forecasting, which are all very important tools and very important, uh, you know, skills to acquire. Uh, people never get inspired by the tooling. Uh, people get inspired by the journey that you, you, the destination that uh, these tools can potentially bring them toward, right? Um, and as leaders, uh, we we do need to be good at balancing, uh, or actually try, I don't know if we are good, but try to balance these two dimensions. On one side, developing people around sales techniques and objection handling and everything you think about that. But on the other side, remind them, why were we doing that in the first hand? Because when you are in the grinder and enterprise software sales and hyper growth companies, is not a picnic. And some days you wake up and you wonder if you're going to be able to put, you know, a foot uh, ahead of the of the next one uh, and, and to keep walking. Um, those moments, uh, it's in those moments, it's important to remember, to remind, to remember that there, there is an endless ocean that, uh, you know, one day by building this boat, we're going to be able to sail uh, with wind and sun and salty uh ocean and have fun and enjoy it and be proud of ourselves and feel really great about what we've achieved as a team, right? Uh, so 
to the extent the pushes that you push your teams to build the bot and you know screw drive faster and hammer faster and so faster uh you have to even more remind them that you know will come the day where we'll be selling out there and it's going to be unbelievable um and i guess that that what this quote means to me that resonates uh, a lot with me i love it and the hallmark of any great leader is the ability to get the team focused on the vision and align the the means to achieving that vision so that people kind of motivate themselves Tell me a little bit more about your sales philosophy. What are some of the other tenets that you embrace? As you think about building a team, as you think about running a team, what are the key things that you focus on? Well, I guess that, you know, there are a few dimensions which uh, over the years, in the early days, I was very focused on making sure people were back to the screwdriver and the soul, making sure that people were really skilled and developed against that. And still to these days, you know, living out of... Uh, of Italy, uh, if you can't equip people and make them competent so that they stay out of trouble, you can't develop leaders locally, which take care of the business, even when you are not there physically, right? So that I still uh, believe into. I still believe very much into um, making sure people have used the same vocabulary, have the same definitions for, you know, when they qualify the business, qualify deals so that we understand each other fast and can make higher quality decisions faster. But on the other side, I think, uh, you know, getting a, a little order, um, I do, and having a much bigger organization and scaling the organization, I do think that keeping the organization healthy around uh, values like uh, discipline, um, like, um, the importance of having a, a, st a strong sense of accountability and a strong sense of ownership is, uh, is a challenge because years after year and quarter after quarter, as you grow the organization, making sure that the teams stay with a high, high standards from that standpoint, it's, it's, it's tiring, it's demanding, and there are more people. And therefore, you know, making sure you develop a culture, uh, around that without turning that into a, a grinder uh, is uh, is quite it's quite a challenge and uh, it's quite something that I spent I spent a lot of time on and together with my leaders uh, which thanks God are uh, are with me and I'm really 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 good at what they do uh, but we do spend a lot of time cultivating that culture in every little details uh, many times people say why are you so much obsessed about little things which don't count like showing up on time in the meetings uh, or uh, or many other aspects or using the right definitions. Um, it's not because I, uh, you know, I'm maniacal about, about that. It's just because at the beginning of the end, right, we start showing up late in meetings or we start getting little corners everywhere. And as we scale, next thing you know, the whole standing of the organization collapses, right? And that's a disaster. It's a disaster. It's not a small thing. It's a big thing. The, uh, you talk a little bit about just the, the intensity of sales. I can relate to that. I've, in, in my career, spent some years in sales as well. And there is an emotional intensity. There's a physical intensity. If you're on a plane, for example, if you're going from one city to another, 
I mean, just the highs and the lows that are that are inherent to the profession. You feel I mean, it wears you out in your career. Has there been a point in time when you've hit a wall? Uh, yeah, a few times actually. <laughs> and it's about you know it's the flip side of uh, of uh, risk taking. Um, you stretch yourself, and sometimes you know you stretch yourself. Uh, too much. Uh, hopefully, hopefully, over time, you also understand what your limits are, and that you are not, uh, you know, omnipotent or indestructible. Uh, um, so yeah, there are a few times. Um, I actually quit working a few times because of that. Right after hitting the wall, that's I guess is the right way to say it, and uh, and almost burning out, um, or actually burning out. Right. I remember, especially as, well, after I left uh, a company called VMC. Um, I had to take a year off and, um, uh, I remember the first weeks, uh, and, uh, even the first month where like almost, uh, a cure of disintoxication, so to say, right. Um, being able to come back into yourself and be present and enjoying the little things of every day and, um, putting things into perspective and, um, and get gathering balance back, um, getting healthy. Sleeping properly and, um, and enjoying life as we should all enjoy it. Um, even when we work hard and even when we uh, are part of very intense high growth teams, uh, um, we should never forget that this is, uh, our first obligation, which is to take care of ourselves. And by the way, as leaders, there is no way, as someone always told me that we can take care of others if we can't take care of ourselves. So hitting the wall is, uh, it's a topic that very few people talk about, uh, and many actually experience, especially the, the, the best ones and the most intense ones. I think it's an under discussed, uh, topic. And I do believe that in an industry where there is a lot of money and a lot at stake, many people are, uh, you know, just, I simply don't care enough about that and even leaders. I would hate to think that in my organization, a bunch of people made a lot of money, but ending, ended up burning out or having, you know, family, family issues or health issues or things like that. Uh, I've got a few scalps on my back and thanks God I recovered from them. Uh, but, um, you know, that made me aware as well that, um, the, the first obligation is to make sure the team is healthy, is in a good place psychologically, emotionally, physically. And then we can take care of the business, we can take care of the customers, we can take care of the people which work with us, around us, uh, and so on and so forth, not the other way around. So you took you took some time off. Fortunately, some of your best years were still ahead of you professionally. You came back. How are you different now? What lessons did you learn that have changed the approach that you're taking to business that are allowing you to um, have the resilience that you need to meet the demands of the job? Well, I think there was a dimension of it, which is, uh, you know, the last time that it happened to me, it was more uh, my own limitations. Uh, I was like a, an engine which runs at 8,000 rounds per minute. Uh, and uh, and because the way I was operating was far more, you know, um, let's, along the line of command and control versus, versus uh, more... Uh, Versus something completely different, which at the time I hadn't realized. And my, the size of my organization was big, but small enough so that I could, could work with command and control. Um, but that takes a toll. And I didn't know any better. 
So that time off helped me to think about that and to think, you know, why would, why is it that it was so hard to run a team of that size? Why, is all, why others with much bigger jobs, um, were able to do great, to have great achievements and weren't looking like as tired as I was. Um, so that obliged me in some ways and also the discomfort associated with all of that, right? Uh, to rethink the way I was operating, uh, center it much more about, um, making sure that I will give myself the priority as far as keeping myself out of trouble, which wasn't, was ever, never a topic for me before, uh, making sure that, and with, you know, travel increasing and jet lags and many nights out and pressure and so on and so forth, that becomes a very important topic. And then age as well, right? As you get older, your energy level tend to decrease normally, not to increase. So how do you scope with all of that uh, still being able to come back home on Saturday and be present with your family and with your kids and with your friends and with your parents or whatsoever, right? Um, and how do you do that? And on Monday, be present with your people, still keeping your emotional balance and your attention to detail and being able to listen with not only with your brain, but with your heart and perceive things, right? Uh, that uh, has been a, a kind of a, a journey for me. Some people figure it out very early. For me, it was did require to work on myself, I must say. Great, great lessons there, though. So running a sales organization, always a daunting proposition, perhaps only to be rivaled by the challenge of being the father to two teenagers. You have a 13-year-old, you have a 14-year-old. Tell me a little bit about how being a father, your experience in raising children has changed your approach to being a CRO. Um, I very often think when I lead my teams, if they were my kids, would I treat them the way I treat them? Uh, and I guess that's the biggest uh, impact, very, very bluntly, right? If I was thinking all those people have parents as well, right? Um, Especially, I think about that, especially when I lead or uh, deal with younger generations. It's even more important, right? Which is, by the way, a very enjoyable part of my job. And I'm just thinking, you know, uh, if his father or his mother was here, or that guy or that gal has, uh, as, uh, as a father or mother, they are like very, uh, just a few years ahead of my kids. When my kids would be in their shoes, how would I like the leader which take care of them to behave? And that helps me, not sure I'm doing a great job, but for sure that helps me, uh, that, that comes to my mind very often. I don't know about you, but uh, that does come to my mind very often. That's a wonderful way to frame it. I've actually got a daughter who is a senior in college. So she's got an internship this summer. And I've had a very similar experience where I've realized Wow, she is actually entering the working world. People are interacting with her the way that I'm interacting with the people on my team. Number one, I'm grateful to the great leaders that she's working with now and what they're teaching, but it's also allowed me to rethink the way that I'm interacting with the people on my team. Yeah. All right, well, we've got time for one more question. Uh, your idea of happiness, I've heard you say that it is to hold on to the big dreams of the early days. What are some of the dreams that you still cherish? Um, I guess the idea that it's true I need to give up in the sense that uh, you look around you and 
I don't know if it translates in English and if you understand my point, you look around you and you see a bunch of people which have given up. What do I mean by give up? I mean that, uh, you know, the idea that uh, we, you, you still have, you step, you can still live your professional life and not only, um, stretching yourself, stretching your ability to learn and be curious, still being curious about things, about people, about new business models, new technologies, new customers, um, new ways of doing things, new go to markets and do it with, uh, with enthusiasm and not taking them for granted. Um, not taking too many things for granted and therefore trying to uh, still have this, uh, yeah, this freshness of the early days, right? And not becoming cynical and not becoming too, uh, I guess the right way is cynical. Uh, the right, the, the right way to, to, to word it is, uh, is cynical. Try to keep this, uh, someone, uh, McMahon will tell you, keep being a student of the game. He calls that being a student of the game. And I think he's, as always, he has good lines, which translate even better. Uh, but that's, that kind of what I mean, right? It's not only being a student, but it's even more than that. It's being curious and open-minded and trying to, uh, be comfortable as well and optimistic enough about the future so that you are open to new experiences and front yourself with the unknown and with, uh, with world that you are not used to uh, confront yourself with and, uh, and still enjoy it rather than, you know, close the doors and give up. Cedric, it's been a wonderful conversation. Thank you so much for the insights that you've shared and also for the contribution that you've made to the profession of sales. I appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me. It was a great, very enjoyable conversation. Just Outstanding.